Alcoholic. It's good to be here. My uh, home group is a Tell It Like It Is group in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. My sobriety date is January the 5th of 1990. It's good to be here and be asked out. Um, I would not say I'm the bomb, nor would anybody probably close to me say I'm the bomb. Um, uh, what I would give is a warning. Um, that if you came here tonight to hear about candles and essential oils and crystals and yoga and what other nonsense I hear in AA today about helping out your recovery, you have like, you might as well just turn off your camera and stop listening to me. Um, because I'm about as old school AA as they come. And I consider myself a big book thumper. Um, but a big book thumper in lines of Don uh, P. Not some kind of new age big book thumper who wants to convince people that if you suffer from some kind of ism, uh, you're eligible for AA membership. Um, you know, I, I was reading one of your flyers for your earlier, uh, an earlier speaker, I guess an earlier version when I was looking for the call in tonight and on the flyer, it said each individual in their personal stories describes in his language and from his own point of view, the best, the way he established his relationship with God. And whenever I hear how it works, Fred, I always like to remind people that God could and would if he was sought does not say God could and would if he were found. Like it, this program has nothing to do with finding and all to do with seeking. Now, if you find, that's, all, that's awesome. That's like the cherry on top. But don't let anyone convince you you have to leave AA just because you don't fit into the religious or spiritual uh, largest group of people. Like, you get to seek. You get to seek. And I was a seeker. Still am. But, uh, you know, a good part of my story is that I didn't believe in God. Um, at all, whatsoever. And as I say all the time, because I came into AA in the 80s and got sober in the 90s, um, I'm not kind of any kind of lunatic. Uh, you know, at that time, lots of things were going around AA. You had inner child workshops. You had people carrying around teddy bears at AA conventions. You had all kinds of nonsense going on. Um, that's just, it breaks my heart to be perfectly honest. Um, but you know, today I am able to amend or weave my regular life with my AA life. It's the same life. I don't have two or three separate lives anymore. And, um, you know, I have a lot of employees, a real lot of employees. And what I could tell all of you to keep myself on track for speaking tonight is that 100% of them have some kind of ism effect in their life, 100%. But what only about 10% or less have is what I have. They're not only a disastrous, messed up person, but they have a physical allergy to alcohol and a mental obsession. And it breaks my heart today that we want to convince everybody that they have a physical allergy and a mental obsession. 
it drives myself crazy. I think about when Bill W. was looking for people when he was so unsuccessful from December of 1934 till when he went to Akron. I think about the whole next year when him and Bob worked with people. I think about what AA would look like today if, like, the people they searched out, like, had a bad day or were feeling a little depressed or had some kind of ism affecting their life. Like, that's not what started AA. Like, what started AA is people like me. I am a throwaway to society. I am a person that society is best to lock up, whether it is in a correctional facility or a mental institution, but I'm a person that should be thrown away, that I am non-salvageable, non-fixable. It means that when I drink, you know, it drives me crazy when people say it's not about drinking. If AA is not about drinking, then what is it about? Um, I could have as much spiritual progress in my life as I want, but I suffer from that allergy. As Tom I used to tell me all the time, he'd say, Billy, I was able to become the warden of a maximum custody penitentiary, and I'm a former inmate, yet I can't have one drink. Not one drink can I have. Like one drink takes it all away. Because I drink like he drinks. I don't know where it's going to take me. I wind up in emergency rooms. I wind up in police stations. I wind up falling downstairs. I wind up crossing streets, weaving in and out of traffic. I wound up passed out in my mother's backyard when it's 10 degrees out, sleeping outside in the cold for eight years, for like eight hours. Like that's what happens when I drink. I don't have some kind of mild drinking problem. I have what talks about in the big book. It took me a long time to find out that there's really only two kinds of people in the world that matter to me. There's lots of other kinds of people in the world that mattered a lot to other people. But for me, there's two kinds of people. There are people who can drink and people who can't drink. And for whatever reason, God chose I'm one of those people who can't drink. I can't drink. It almost, I'm not the most sensitive guy, but when I say that, it could make even me sensitive. Like, I can't drink. And the problem with that is that I love to drink. And the other problem with that is I'm a good drinker. And there is sometimes a speaker that I speak with, and he always says, you know, I hate when Billy says he's a good drinker. Good drinkers don't wind up in AA. That's total crap. I've been a good drinker since I started drinking. I know what a good drinker looks like. For the most part, I only like to hang out with good drinkers. Like, I know what that looks like. The problem with me is like everything else. Um, If there's only two kinds of people, people who can drink and people who can't drink, I spent a good part of the beginning of my life trying to convince myself I was in the group of people who can drink. In fact, it terrified me to think I was in the group of people that can't drink. 
because I couldn't survive without drinking. It sometimes reminds me of the serenity prayer. You know, the serenity prayer, um, you know, I love the original version, you know. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things that need to be changed. That's the original version. Not the courage to change the things I can. The courage to change the things that need to be changed. Now, the problem with me is like the same thing with that people who can't drink and people who can drink. Um, you know, when you say that serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Um, I always want to not accept the things I can't change. That's the story of my life, okay? Story of my life. And number one is that I'm an alcoholic who can't drink. I'm not willing to accept that on any level. And then if you go a line further in the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. Um, I always want to change things that can't be changed, like that I'm an alcoholic. Like I put everything in the wrong category. And the wisdom to know the difference, I got no wisdom. That's the problem. I don't know the difference. So those first two categories of the serenity prayer, I put everything in the wrong category. And if that was the case, looking now 33 years later, I never wanted to accept that I was an alcoholic. And I thought my life was over because I got arrested too much. And I would never be able to have a decent life. I, I believe in God today, not because I've worked a perfect fourth step, not because I read the Bible one too many times on a lot of business trips. Um, no, I believe in God because I've witnessed miracles. If you read the pamphlet of Members I View, I've witnessed miracles in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. At the end of that pamphlet, the guy's describing what he's seen in AA, and he says, I've seen the blind see and the deaf hear. Like, I've seen that in Alcoholics Anonymous with my own two eyes. I've seen things that are not humanly possible. I, I grew up an Irish Catholic in New York City and on Long Island, and um, that doesn't make me an alcoholic. I come from a long line of alcoholics. I have 42 first cousins. That's not a lot where I come from. I, uh, my both parents, my both my grandfathers died in tragic alcohol-related accidents in their young 40s. One fell coming in the stairs home in Brooklyn, fractured his skull. The other fell off a house painting, drunk during the day. That was his job, painting houses. I think I was 40-something years old before I got the truth on those two stories. You know? In my family, I don't know about yours, but we have an, uh, an ability. Like, while you're alive, we will tell you what a piece of garbage you are and how bad you are and everything else. But in my family, once you die, you get immediate sainthood. And once you die, all we talk about is how great the person was and everything else. Anything that could possibly be bad or evil we never talk about ever again 
Um, I, I come from a really messed up family, but again, that does not make me an alcoholic. Um, my dad was an alcoholic as long as I knew him. I didn't know the term alcoholic. My mom was pretty much an untreated codependent and untreated Al-Anon her whole life until my dad uh, left and she went to Al-Anon. Um, you know, I grew up around alcohol. I grew up with a dad who was a deep cover narcotics agent. And as you know, the 80s were a pretty busy season for if you worked in the narcotics industry. If you watch a few movies, you can get to learn that the early onset of my dad would call BC before crack narcotics enforcement, meaning mostly powder cocaine coming out of Colombia and other places. And my dad would take us down like Roy is, has a background of a, of a bridge in front of him. And where I grew up, when my dad was working nights, he would take me and my brothers, we would go to the deli and get sandwiches. And we'd go down to what was called the bluff on the Long Island Sound. And at the bluff would be all these town highway department trucks of guys on lunch. And I guess a bunch of them were smoking weed or drinking beers or doing whatever. But my dad would look at us and he would say, this is where you're going to end up if you keep acting the way you're acting. You're going to end up working for the town in a highway department truck smoking weed at lunchtime. And he would sometimes when we went on vacation upstate New York, he would stop outside of prison. If you don't know New York, while most of the criminals come from downstate, they house us all upstate. And um, my dad would stop outside of prison and he would say to us, like, we drink. They use drugs. Like, that's what we do. We drink. And he meant it to the core. He meant it. Sometimes kills me today in AA when I hear the reference hard drugs. Like, what is that? Is that a way to tell me that alcohol is somehow a soft substance? Is it a way to tell me that things that happen to people that take drugs don't happen to me because I drink? That's insanity. I don't need to show you my fingerprint report, but that is completely insane. I have one of my family photo albums here. We divided them up after my mother died. I can honestly tell you that if I went to the pictures of growing up, I cannot find a picture of my mother without a baby on her shoulder and a Kent 100 in her mouth and not worried about the smoke being too close to the baby. I cannot find a picture of my dad without a beer or an Irish whiskey in his hand. Like we drink. I, I heard the term alcoholic for the first time when I was in like fifth or sixth grade. I had two aunts. Sometimes I forget to mention them. My aunt Joe, who my dad called my mother's crazy sister, Joe. Um, my mother told me my aunt Joe was an alcoholic, which meant she couldn't have one drink which just, I didn't even understand it at the time. I just knew that my Aunt Joe became like some kind of charismatic Catholic who spoke in tongues and, you know, but my mom told me she went to AA. 
my dad's sister, who he called his crazy sister, Sheila, every time she had a baby, the baby had to come live with us. My mother had to take care of it. They didn't even know what postpartum depression was at that time. But every time my aunt had a baby, she wound up in a state mental facility for a couple of months. And, um, you know, my aunt Sheila, I don't want to forget to say this. My grandmother died when I was a couple of years sober. I was living in a single room occupancy hotel in New York City. I had recently not been incarcerated. I was kind of ashamed and embarrassed to go to my grandmother's funeral. And what I want to tell you is, if you talk to the wrong people in AA, you will get the wrong advice. Because the people in New Age AA, yeah, they told me, no, Billy, you need to take care of yourself. You don't need to go there. It might trigger you. You might get triggered. Not my sponsor at the time. He said, Billy, you've been a self-centered, I can't even say the rest of his language, for your entire life. And your dad's mom just died. And you're going to get on a train and you're going to go out to that funeral. And you're going to go to the mass the next day. And you're going to be there for your family because you've never been there before. Now, I had been out of touch with the family for a long time. I had heard that my Aunt Jo, a lot of changes in her life. Well, back then in New York City, if you went to a funeral, you always went downstairs into the smoking room. People talk about AA being a smoker's paradise, but the real smoker's paradise back in the good old days was the smoking room in a funeral home. That was the smoker's paradise. And uh, I went downstairs to talk to some of my relatives, and my Aunt Joe was there. No, nah, my Aunt Sheila was there, my dad's sister. And I never forget, she came up to me and she said, hey, Billy, I heard you got sober. And I said, yeah, Aunt Joe, I'm like three and a half years sober now. And she said, that's awesome, Billy. I'm now 18 years sober in AA and 15 years abstinent in OA. You see, I had known that my Aunt Joe went back to school and back to school again, and then got her doctorate in special education. And then it became the dean of the State University of New York school program for special ed teachers. See, I knew Aunt Joe, I knew how it was, and I knew how it was today, but I didn't know what happened. And I remember she said to me, Billy is that guy with you from AA. And I said, yeah, that's my buddy, Kevin. And she said, that's awesome. My sponsor is upstairs. Like my whole life has been changed by Alcoholics Anonymous. I always say there's a, I have nothing in common with Bill W. I don't come from New England. I'm not a Red Sox fan. I didn't go to a prep school. I wasn't an officer in a foreign war. Um, I didn't have any of those great fortunes. 
But there's a part in his book where he says, I had arrived in his story. And for me, I always talk about arriving. Like, see, that's the difference. You know, my Aunt Joe, the crazy, my mom's sister, who I told you found AA. The first time I remember reading the line, war fever ran high, was my Aunt Joe had a big book in every one of her son's bedrooms on the nightstand. Like she was a little over the top. And like, I remembered years later reading war fever ran high. And I'm like, I read this at Aunt Joe's house. Like, how crazy is that? But, um, when you read that book like that, it doesn't help you. You have to go through the book with someone who's been through the big book. You have to be with someone who helps you identify and not compare. When I talk about arriving, I talk about two particular situations in my life, about seven years apart from each other. One was when I was 12 years old. A couple of kids invited me to the party in the woods on Friday night. I had never been to the party in the woods on Friday night, but I knew I would love it. I have this magical ability. Anything that sounds boring, horrible, or religious, I know I'll hate. Anything that sounds over-the-top fun, sinful, and put down by most good members of society, I know I'll love. Like, I've known that about myself for a long time. And that night in the woods, my life changed because of four things. There was a bonfire in the woods. There was alcohol in the woods. There were girls in the woods. And there was heavy metal in the woods. And I can tell you, by the day after that night in the woods, I didn't have a lot of dreams and aspirations. If my life never got better than a bonfire, loud heavy metal music, girls, and alcohol, my life would be fine. That's all I needed. About seven years later, I was in an Irish bar in New York. Bars in New York close at 4 a.m., last calls at 3.30 or 3.45 This night, um, the bartender came up to me and whispered in my ear, Billy, when they call last call, just go back by the kitchen in the back of the bar. So I did that. And that night I became a part of what I thought was a very special part of society. I got locked in the bar, not locked out. I got to drink with like 10 or 12 other people around the bar while the bartenders cleaned up. I thought I had made it. I thought this is what I've been searching for my whole life to be part of this special crowd. Like I'm a bar drinker. I'm a woods drinker. I love everything that's disgusting about it. You want to take a sponge and wipe it down a far a bar at four in the morning and ring it out into shot glasses, I'll drink it. I'm just telling you right now. That's the kind of disgusting alcoholic that I am. Um, I had a hard time assimilating in school. A real hard time. I had a bad temper. A really bad temper. 
I convinced my mom to somehow pay for martial arts classes because I told her it'd be better for my discipline. But really, I just wanted to learn how to fight, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I had this other problem, which was that I kept doing well on these tests that they gave us at school. And so they kept telling my mother that I was special. They kept telling her that I had unique abilities for math and English. They kept telling her that I had this unique ability to memorize things that I read. And the only reason I tell you all that is because the story of my life is anytime I figure out I have a unique ability, I use it for horrible purposes, not any good to mankind. Horrible. And so that meant I don't take books home and I don't study and I don't like teachers. And it means you put me in these classes with all these odd looking students. No offense on anyone that's in these was in those classes. I realize this is just my distorted view of the world. But like, I don't know if you've ever been in an accelerated math class. But here I am with all the perfect students. And there I am with my Ozzy Osbourne oil painting on the back of my denim jacket and my Marlboro Reds pushed down the front of my pants and my black engineer boots. And I know I'm smarter than everybody else in the class. And it, you know, they threw me out within about five months. But the class in accelerated math, those students look like the other people the first time you go to a big book workshop. You know, all the people you hate in AA, all the over-the-top, rah, 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 AA is incredible people that you just can't stand. That's what accelerated math is like. And, you know, when I'm told to talk about my progression, it's very simple. By the time I was in ninth grade, the only thing I thought about on a Monday morning at school is where are we drinking on Friday night? Whose parents are away? whose sister or brother can buy us something. That's it. And by the time I was in 10th grade, the only thing I thought about on a Monday morning is I'm not like everybody else. I can't make it to Friday night. Friday night might as well be next summer. Like Friday night's not possible. I got a drink by Wednesday. Preferably Tuesday. I didn't know it was an angel at the time. But the first real angel in my life was a juvenile court judge on Long Island. Apparently, he had dealt with people like me before. I'm an expert at the blame game, by the way. You put me in front of a principal or a guidance counselor or some like really over-the-top tolerant social worker. Uh, I will get them to understand how hard it is to be me. That my dad's an undercover narcotics agent who's gone for weeks at a time and him and my mom got divorced and blah, blah, blah. Not this judge. This judge gave me a choice which changed my life. It changed the, the course of my life for sure. It was like the price is right, price is right, except there were only two doors. There was door one and door two. 
door one, I could go to a juvenile correctional facility. And he was even kind of a funny guy. It's like the only thing I remember about that day. He said, Billy, they have a school behind the wall. You won't have any trouble going to school. And then the reason I remember that day so well is because of what he said next. He said, but for you, Billy, sometimes the problem isn't going to school. It's going to class even when you do go to school. So the miraculous thing about this place is you'll have to go to class too. Now, the other choice was I had to live with this contract for life with my mother, which sounded horrible. And by this time, my mother was an aggravating, over-the-top Al-Anon who was driving me completely out of my mind. But here's what I have to tell you, and it's probably one of the most important things of my life. See, it, I, I had not been institutionalized yet. And so I was scared to go to a juvenile correctional facility, not because I didn't think I was tough enough. I was scared I wouldn't be able to drink. I was petrified that they were going to send me someplace and I wouldn't be able to drink anymore. So I took the contract with my mother. Now, the funny thing is, now today, if you gave me the same choice, I am not tough enough to go back inside for sure. But at least I safely know that you can get drunk at any prison or jail in America. Like, I had an unhealthy fear that day because I had not been institutionalized yet. I thought like everything was on the down low on the inside, like there was no drugs or alcohol inside. That's yeah, simply not true. The last thing on my list of my mother was my contract to go to AA. And I had to go. And if you're a teenager and you have a lunatic mother in Al-Anon, Al Al the one way you know that you can manipulate her is through AA. Like, I knew that. Like, if I needed to get out and smoke, even if I was grounded, if I said I was going to AA, she bought into it. I always joke around. I went to my first anniversary meeting when I was 16 years old. It was in a church basement. I had heard people talk about the anniversary meeting. Now, I know I hear other people. I can't discount their stories. Other people say they came to AA and felt at home right away. That is not my story. I felt like I was sentenced to like, I don't know if you grew up in the 80s or whatever, but um, there was this religious show like when MTV and cable came out with Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker. Like I felt like I was on that show in an AA meeting. I felt like I was with all these religious lunatics who were my parents' age. That's it. That's what I thought AA was going to take my whole life away. My whole life. I heard about the anniversary meeting. I was grounded again. I can tell you my story very simply. When it comes to teenage years, I was always grounded. When it comes to junior high and high school, I was always suspended or on detention or in study hall. And when it comes to the New York criminal justice system, I was either on juvenile probation, adult probation, in the county jail on a violation of probation, a sentenced inmate for my first two and a half years of sobriety, 
and on court paper until almost 30 years old. That's pretty much my life. I, uh, at that um, anniversary meeting, this old lady turned the lights down halfway. She was like 34 years old. This old guy, he came in with a cake with candles on it. He was like 40, okay? And all these church-going freaks that I thought they were sang happy birthday. And I sat there thinking, 26, 36, 46, like even if I lived 30 years, this is going to be my big night out, the Friday night with the old lady who turns the lights down halfway and this other guy with the cake and candles, like... I had so much more. And, you know, I got to be very honest, you know, because sometimes I think we expect newcomers to be so well. I can't go through the big book tonight, but I can tell you there's a line in the sixth step that's in the, that's in the book that's not on the shade. In the average meeting, people tell you, you can't get rid of your own character defects. Billy, only God can do that. God can take him away. Not true. That is not what the book says. The book puts a requirement on the defects that God can take away. That I must first find them objectionable. Now, let me tell you about me as a teenager and in my early 20s. Most of what the rest of the world objected to, I couldn't wait to do. Okay. And most of what the other world embraced, I hated. That's a very difficult road to go down from personal experience. I hear people say, Are you a friend of Bill's? I'm more worried about, Are you a friend of Fred of Jim's? In the chapter more about alcoholism. I'm like Fred and Jim. I love that description and more about alcoholism. You know, men and women who lost the ability to keep drinking. I love that description. I can't drink. It's a done deal. If I'm drinking, nothing else is possible. Nothing. I hear people call me. They've not done a four step for three years. They've not done a four step for four months, whatever. At least they called. You know who doesn't call me to do a four step? Someone drinking. So all those people we're making fun of that supposedly don't have good sobriety or aren't living in the solution or all this other nonsense, judgmental BS. Yeah, it's crazy talk. It is complete crazy talk. See, we have, we're very fond of saying don't quit before the miracle. I buy into what Fisherman John in the Bronx says. Don't quit after the miracle. I'm not saying that emotional sobriety isn't great. I have brief relapses into emotional sobriety, and I enjoy it all the time. But am I perfect? No way. No way. And when I hear people, like, try to convince somebody new who is dying of alcoholism, Oh, yeah, AA is mu about much more than not drinking. Of course it is. There's no doubt about that. But don't ever, ever put down not drinking. 
if you drank the way I drank for a certain period of time and all of a sudden one day you no longer had a drink and then another day in a row you never had a drink and then two months later you never had a drink, a miracle happened. It's right in front of my eyes. Somehow the power of God, and that's what I believe. I don't judge people. I believe that the God I believe in today carries people in the palm of his or her or whoever's hand I could care less until they get to a fork in the road. I don't even debate meeting makers make it anymore. They all make it to the same place, to the fork in the road. The big book describes that fork in the road is willing to take spiritual help or blotting out your life. That's the fork. Every meeting maker makes it there. It's my job as a sponsor to hopefully we go down the right side of that fork. I love more about alcoholism because I've tried every possible way to stop drinking. Every possible way. Except stop drinking. Let me just be clear on that. Like stopping drinking completely sounds a little drastic. A little over the top. I met a lot of people in probation waiting rooms at DWI school, anger management classes. I could go on and on. All of those places, if you happen to be new, are not a good place to find a life coach. Just letting you in on that. Um, a guy at DWI school told me one time, Billy, maybe when you know like that you just want to tone it down a little, just drink white wine spritzers. I didn't even know what a white wine spritzer was. You know what I know about them today? I can drink 40 of them in one night, okay? Like I wake up with a vicious headache, okay? I have to take ice cubes and break it on, my, and break it on a towel on my mother's kitchen table and go back to bed with that towel and ice on my head. That's what I know. That's what I know. That's it. That's all I learned. Consequences will never get an alcoholic sober. Ever. If I ever had my own country, my special forces is all alcoholic. Because you know, if you've been around here, we all say it from the podium every once in a while, how many funerals you'll go to when you're in AA. You know what's sadder than that? How many funerals you won't go to? How many alcoholics are drinking themselves to death for 40 or 50 years? They're like the ultimate winner on Survivor Island. You can't kill them. Like, you ever see that person in a meeting? They have like two days back and you're like, thank Christ, they're back. And then you hear about their latest bottom and you're like, oh my God. They used to be a speaker he was one of my favorite. His name was Kip C. He was a really, really good friend of mine. And if you're looking for a tape one night of hope, you get Kip C. Because Kip C's was the kind of story you heard where every time he told his bottom, you said to yourself, oh, he must stop drinking now. And he doesn't stop drinking. And then in sobriety, his life gets so bad, you say to yourself, he must drink now. 
and he doesn't drink. It's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. No, I don't have a lot of time left, but I'll let you know I did meet Joe and Charlie, and then I met them many times. I didn't stay sober because I was afraid of getting locked up again. I stayed sober because a little bit at a time, my life was getting better. And sometimes I think people, what does a little bit at a time mean? The best way I could define it is, instead of being so hungry that I go into a restaurant and act like I'm going to the bathroom but leave without paying my bill, sober and starving, I'm instead in my own garbage pit apartment making ramen noodles for the eighth day in eight days. Like my people in AA are the people who are gourmets with, with ramen noodles. Those are my people. You know, my people can live on ramen noodles and Newports and Marlboros and require nothing else. That's it. During the pandemic, I would laugh. Early in the pandemic, when the world was really shut down, I actually bought some ramen noodles just for old time's sake. I was like, I need to like, just, you know, just for the hell of it. But I remember one night I was in this meeting and somebody said, oh, now that I've had this lockdown, I know what it's like to be locked up. No, you don't. Okay. Like during lockdown, yeah, I got to go to my fancy coffee bean grinder and grind my perfect, you know, Costa Rican coffee and put it in my French press and make the perfect cup of coffee. Yeah, there's none of that in the correctional facility, okay? There's no French press. There's no coffee bean grinder. There's nothing like that. Um, but Joe and Charlie saved my life because they told me what alcoholism is. And I found out you cannot get better unless you know what's wrong with you. People ask me, why do we work the steps? It's very simple. I work the steps because I have no defense against the second drink. I have a lot of great drinking stories. You know what they all have in common? The second drink. That's what they all have in common. My big, big book has a kryptonite, like Superman. My big book is useless if I have the first drink. So I had to learn by banging my head against the wall. The reason the steps are so important and so powerful and all we have is that they lead me to re lead a somewhat decent life where I don't feel like I need the first drink. And I know I'm in trouble. It doesn't happen a lot. But back, way back when, if I felt like drinking, there was probably something going on. I believe in God today. I'll just end with that since I read the beginning of your flyer. In 1995, I was going to go to the International Convention. I hated this guy in my one meeting. His name was Wit. Honestly, I called him Wit the Twit, okay? Just being honest about what a jerk I was, okay? 
He was everything I was not. He was raised in a rich family, you know, everything I was not. And um, went to four years of college in four years, all things I find like climbing Mount Everest, you know? And, um, but at the time, as a result of a young people's conference, I was going to school and I had a job at the Marriott in New York City. As a result of working on that committee, they hired me. And um, I got the employee rate. And you know what? Witten didn't have enough money, believe it or not, to go to San Diego. And I don't know how I said this because it's definitely God. But in a weakness moment, I said, well, you should just come with me. I have an employee room for $39 a night. And he said, yes. And uh, he was the exact opposite of me. I knew when I got to the hotel, he got there before me and he had his toothbrush and everything perfectly lined out on a towel in the bathroom. And he had his clothes hung up and he had everything perfect. I was like, oh, this is going to be a disaster, you know, which it was. It was a disaster. One day of me being in the room, clothes are all over the place. I've already met two people that I invited to take stay in our room because they don't have a place to stay. Like, it was a disaster, you know? But I want to tell you some, an important story with my last two minutes. The Wednesday after I got home from the International, four nights later, three nights later, I went to the Oxford Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in New York City. There was an old lady sitting at the podium who I'd never seen before. I could just tell that she had had an air of dignity and class to her. She was sitting at the speaker's table. She introduced herself. She was like 78 years old and from Israel. She had been at the International Convention, too, and she wanted to stop and see GSO in New York on the way home. She carried the flag for Israel on that Friday night in the flag ceremony. She had a tattoo on her forearm of the number from the concentration camp she was in as a child in Europe. She told the story of being behind the stage at Jack Murphy Stadium in alphabetical order and meeting the man, the men from Iran and Jordan and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And she told the story of them all putting their flags down and hugging and crying. Like my agnostic armor took a huge hit that night. I couldn't survive not believing in God. Other things happened over the next year that made me a complete convert. But I thank you for having me out tonight. I OAA my entire life. Thanks. Wow, Billy.